Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Our Common Ground. Transforming truth to power. One broadcast at a time. Black History Month is... Um a commemoration, vocab word, for black activists, another vocab word, who took, we celebrate black people that helped us change history. It reminds us to be strong, even in politics. Oy. Black history is important to me because I have to remember where I came from and I have to remember who came before me. Because you have to look at the things that Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, and um, Malcolm X did for us black people so people can't treat us unfairly because they think some type of belief. It doesn't matter if you're black, if you're white, you should always celebrate it because you know the, the, the struggles black leaders went through in order for you to be here right now. Black History Month 2021, and here at Our Common Ground to celebrate. Welcome to our Our Common Ground Black History Special, the history of black political movements in America. This is a four-week lecture series on the history and interchange of black political movement and progress each Thursday, 8 p.m. with Dr. James L. Taylor. Sit back, nerd, and liberate. Thank you for joining us. And now, Our Common Ground is honored to present Professor, Author, Chair of the Department of Politics at the University of San Francisco, Dr. James L. Taylor. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome back to Our Common Ground. Thank you all for being here, and I'm really glad to have this opportunity to uh, talk today and to um, to share some perspective. I hope that um, you will get your young people uh, to sit down and listen. If you're, uh, you know, you know someone who's interested in learning more about African American thinking, African American political history, uh, the uh, you know, important literature and movements that 
uh, we have developed as a people and in strategy uh, to survive and to thrive in the United States of America under race conditions. Um, then, you know, today I hope to offer at least some uh, uh, texts and some sources that people can uh, adopt or uh, look up and, and begin to, um, to read uh, so that they can better educate themselves. Um, I, I tell my students and my children that I educated myself around black politics. Um, I had one class in graduate school in black politics, and it was an independent study with Michael Preston uh, at USC, um, but I never had a class in black politics. Now, you think about that. You think about how I teach, how I talk, how I, how I, how I understand um, scholarship, and I'm saying that to say that <clears throat> my formal education had very little to do with my knowledge of black politics. That is to say that, you know, I was taught how to think and how to use certain methods uh, in terms of being trained, like anybody who's trained to do anything, you are trained. You know, a dog gets trained. So, you know, you know being trained is one thing. But um, apart from that, I've had to do self-independent education around everything else I know. Um, and I, I didn't, you know, I, I learned black politics by reading books. That's how I got where I am. My Ph.D. does not account for how I come across in terms of my teaching. That comes from blackness. That comes from the projects. That comes from my mother. That comes from my brothers and my sisters in my neighborhood. Um, and from my, my, my knowledge and appreciation for the depth of who we are as a people um, and the special role we play in world history as the target of the most powerful um, human invention in the past 500 years, the American state. We have survived. Most of us have thrived. Many of us have succumbed in different ways. While a American racial state has been at war with us for 500, well, roughly 400 years. It's been at war with us, and it artificially elevated the white group to make them believe that they were superior. So now that the realities of the 21st century are before us, and there's no way for white people to think that they still are superior to anybody, look at Donald Trump. He's, he proves that, that white people ain't superior to anybody. Um, and neither are any of the others who are, you know, in other words, it, 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 just because you're white don't mean you're related to Karl Marx or or Einstein, you know, and yet somehow race worked that way for us for a long time. So you could talk about Einstein and Europe and uh, Marx and Freud and, you know, Schopenhauer and, you know, talk about Mozart and Beethoven and Shakespeare, um, but, uh, and you know, and still miss the main uh, connection back to the African-American community uh, as it relates to um, the depths of the culture and, and, and how um, knowledge um, is hidden here. Knowledge is kept from you. Our brothers and sisters walk around half ignorant because that is the outcome of the product investment. 
In other words, the American state for 400 years had its foot on the neck of black people and it had held up white people by the bottom of their feet over its head, standing up tall. So the, the Uncle Sam is holding every white, you know, symbolically Uncle Sam is holding up the white man in his hands, and the, you know, and, and the white man standing above everybody. And the meanwhile, Uncle Sam, while he got the white man uh, feet in his hands holding him up above his head, Uncle Sam has his foot on the neck of black people and has his foot on the neck of red people um, and, and brown people. And so the real truth of reparations is that being white is reparations. And nobody else is ever going to help you understand it this way. And nobody else talks this way. This is why I needed to be on that committee before Congress, to help them understand what reparations is. Reparations is not a payout for an injury or a tort, T-O-R-T, a simple injury. Not, not in, not in, that's when you crash somebody's car. You get reparations when you break, you know, you break somebody's window, you fix their window. That's reparations. Reparations is you break something, you fix it. Black people have been in a permanent condition of war with the most powerful human entity against them in the middle of the country, in the belly of the economic thing. In fact, black slavery is the father of capitalism. We, as I said last show, have been taught false doctrine. We were taught that capitalism is the big thing. Slavery was just this thing that happened along the way. And now we know the truth through ample scholarship that explained to us how slavery was actually the source, not the product. And so before you can start talking about capitalism, you've got to talk about racism because racism is what gave us capitalism. We've always had it backwards. King had it backwards. Malcolm had it backwards. That, that whole era had it backwards because that was the received wisdom at that time, um, is that slavery was the small thing, and capitalism and industrial revolution, you know, American greatness, American ingenuity, Eli Whitney, the cotton engine, um, uh, Gerald Ford, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Ford with the, the, you know, Henry Ford with the Model T and invention and, and the Wright brothers with the, you know, with the, with the airplanes and, um, you know, Bill Gates with, with Microsoft. You know, this is American in, ingenuity and invention. But the truth is, if the American government did for black people what it did for white people since they arrived, which is artificially elevate them above their real capacities and give them a false sense of superiority that they've used for over 200 years here. And you must keep in mind, when I talk about white people, I understand that they've only been here for a minute. They ain't from here. And y'all let them act like they're from here every day, telling you to go back to Mexico when you're from Mexico. You're from, you, you a Mexican from Mexico. You're a Mexican in Texas, or you're a Mexican in Arizona, or you're a Mexican in California, and the white man from Europe is telling you to go back to Mexico that they stole with the Mexican-American War in 1848-1850. They took half of Mexico away, 50%. And now they hate Mexicans in, in, in California coming across Mexico. Texas and California ain't nothing but twin sisters 
of, and they are Mexico. I am in Mexico right now. And this country took it in 1840 through a fake war, which was about slavery expanding all the way to the Pacific. And, and so, the, you know, the idea that, you know, when you look at Texas and, and California as these sort of twin developments, Texas becomes a slave state, California becomes a free state, but they're both a part of this same, this same dynamic, this same reality. And so when we start talking about a literature and a bibliography to educate ourselves, I think you really have to just go to the black bookstores and sit down and just pick out some books you like. In Oakland, uh, we have um, Marcus Books, named after Marcus Garvey. Uh, and, there's the, and there's another in San Francisco that went out of business, but the black community has fought to support it, and it was brought back, the uh, Garvey uh, Bookstore uh, I'm sorry, the Marcus Bookstore in San Francisco is back open, you know, with a smaller offering of books, but it's still there. You have Esowon, E-S-O-W-O-N, in L.A., major black bookstore um, over in, I think, over in the Crenshaw area, uh, or Lemaire Park. I think it's in Lemaire Park now. I think they moved it to Lemaire Park. In Chicago, I've been to major bookstores there that aren't necessarily black, but they, are, uh, they have entire sections of black and progressive writing and re- literature. Um, you know, when we have Borders and Barnes and & Nobles, you still could go into a section of the bookstore and see African-American section. They'd have three books, but at least they'd have, you know, three books. <laughs> you know, you could pull one of them and, and, and sit down and read until a cup of coffee at the bookstore. So part of the dilemma of what we're talking about here of educating ourselves is getting access to material and getting access to good material and then getting access to accurate material because – Part of the confusion of now is that the Internet has made everybody an expert on everything. Everybody became an expert on impeachment. Everybody became an expert on whether a president can be removed from office or uh, forbidden from coming back. Everyone with, uh, with a computer now thinks they're an expert in everything. All the people had opinions about everything that, you know, they had an opinions about, um, about, about the voting machines. Everybody, everybody now is a voting machine expert. Everybody who's white and ain't been to college, all of a sudden, with their MAGA hats on, is an expert on all things that come up. This is the stupidity of the Internet. This is the stupidity of the Internet. And I think at some point, people, we've got to stop acting like the Internet is still new. Why do we keep talking like it's new? Why do we keep acting like the Internet is only 15 years old, 5 years old, 10 years old, like we just started doing the Internet? Like, MySpace ain't 15, 20 years old. MySpace is what got black folk together in general Louisiana in, in, in 2008. Nobody uses MySpace anymore. To my knowledge, it might make a, a comeback because ain't nothing else out there except, you know, new stuff they keep finding, but it's all empty. So MySpace will probably make a comeback like Adidas uh, because ain't nothing else out there. And it was one of the early ones, and I'm sure they'll find a way to make MySpace mean something again. I don't care how much you get Reddit and Tumblr and all of these others, um, you know, uh, there's a reason why, you know, some of the, you know, the traditional brands, uh, you know, are what they are. People tend to come back to them, right? But, but um, my point is, whatever the technology, it has given people a false sense of knowledge. And, and that knowledge, and I'm calling it knowledge stupidity, this knowledge stupidity leads people to dismissing other people who've actually studied. So you actually studied for 20 years anthropology. And you are studying 
methods of anthropology, and you've looked. At, you're, you're dealing with, um, you know, something like, um, I don't know, archaeology. You know, you're just sort of looking at different, different, you know, uh, folklore, cultural practices. And you studied it. You studied the food. You studied the language. You studied the clothes. You studied the men, women, children, marriage rights, the religious rights, ancient rights, um, archives. You studied uh, original um, uh, manuscripts. And you have a definitive takeaway opinion about a thing based on your informed opinion. And then somebody else Googles it, reads a two-minute article, gathers the big points, and then argues with you from a standpoint of authority. And I call that knowledge stupidity. You with the Internet Googling does not give you a Ph.D. in everything or anything. And I think it's very important for us to seek out knowledge um, recognizing that we're going to have to educate ourselves and also that there's a lot of bad information out there and that there's a lot of voices out there that now muddy up the truth and accuracy of things so that the recent regime of alternative facts and, uh, you know, 25,000 daily lies, that's, that, that, that's not going away. That, that has actually taken root now in this culture, in the dominant culture. Because you can see, in light of the prosecution going on, there's no other side to this story. There's only one side to this, and and the and the jurors um, are sitting back saying, "This don't even matter. It doesn't even matter that Donald Trump has been proven. He has been proven to have done what they've accused him of, and and he is trusting that racism." And that's what you all need to understand. The answer to everything going on in America right now has, is one answer. It's not economics. It's not economic inequality. It's racism. America is going to die because of racism. Because America was born on racism. And America can't live without racism. So in order for America to live, it, it has to continue to be racist. So if you want to get rid of racism, you've got to kill America. And most of us ain't ready to kill America. Too many of us love America, and it's racism rather than challenging those things that would um, completely eradicate it because then it becomes unfamiliar, and that's what's happening right now. So I think what we have to do is ground ourselves, ground ourselves in literature, scholarship, reading, and not simply doing it the cheap, fast, easy way. You know, if you have to listen to you know, books because you are a busy person and you don't have time to sit in one spot and you like to listen in your car and, you know, listen on your headphones, more power to you. Use that technology. You know, but I would get myself books. The way I educated myself from high school on was I just read, 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 read. So I'm giving you my method. You want to know why James Taylor knows so much about black politics? Because he read about black politics. Nobody taught me. I had, let, me, let me correct myself. I had one teacher in undergraduate college at Pepperdine University named Calvin Bowers, who was the pastor of the Figueroa Church of Christ on 57th and Figueroa in L.A. He was a longtime Pepperdine University professor, and he taught a class called The African American Experience in the Christian Religion. And it was Calvin Bowers, I want to give him respect, who introduced me to David Walker. And so that's the first book I want to introduce you to, is David Walker's Appeal. 
it's written in 1829, uh, 1830, 1831, uh, depending upon these different editions that he kept writing. He was found suddenly dead uh, in 1831 in front of his doorstep. His child had died a few days earlier, a couple of weeks earlier, um, of, of what was basically tuberculosis, and some people think he may have died of it, um, but others think that he was killed at his doorstep for the militant track that was the, the, the David Walker's Appeal, um, and this, the title of the book is actually about 50 words. It's like David Walker's appeal to the colored citizens of the United States of America and expressly and, and expressly and especially to, you know, and he goes on and on. So if you look at a lot of 19th century literature, you'll see these long titles, you know. Um, uh, for example, Martin Delaney wrote a book called uh, Blake, B-L-A-K-E. Uh, it was his answer to Harriet... Um, Harriet uh, Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, and the subtitle was, uh, uh, it was Blake, uh, or the Huts of America, you know, and, um, and, and it tells this whole beautiful story of a black man whose wife was sold into slavery in Cuba, and he leaves the American South and goes to Cuba, so there's this sort of pan, panoramic, um, I'm sorry, diasporic, pan-African, pan-American dynamic to black slavery in America, and he becomes atheistic. Um, uh, uh, the main character Blake in Delaney's book. That's a good book. Um, it was serialized in a in a um, in a magazine because it was written so haphazardly and poorly. Um, but the message of it is so powerful. It's about a black man who was, who loved his wife, uh, who was enslaved, and he had been away. He came back real strong, and they had sold her away. A white woman sold her away. So they're dealing with race and gender and love. Um, and this is called, again, this is called Blake or The Huts of America, by Martin R. Delaney. And it was actually his response to Uncle Tom because Harriet Tubman, Harriet Beecher Stowe had projected black people as these naturally docile, God-loving people who you can do anything to and they're still going to love you. Because Uncle Tom in the book is not a sellout. I don't know how, well, I do know how he became a sellout in our history. Garbiets did that. But Uncle Tom in the book does not sell out ever, not once. And so I love to tell people Uncle Tom was no sellout. Uh, Uncle Tom died because he refused to sell out. He was asked, where did the, uh, your relatives run away to? By Simon Legree. And when he said uh, he wouldn't say anything, Simon Legree beat him to death. Read the end of the book. He beats him to death. And, and Uncle Tom's last words are, you poor, miserable, he basically said, you poor, miserable, white fool. How much of a sellout is that? And then Uncle Tom dies. Because he refused to sell out where his people had run away as runaway slaves. And, 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 um, and so Blake was Delaney's attempt to show a more militant black response. In this Henrico, his name is Henrico Blake is the character. And he's a John Henry type, big, strong, muscular black man who is kind of feared out of his prowess by the whites. And they kind of give him his space. But when he comes back and sees his wife uh, going, he rails against God, and that's um, responding to the Christian persona of Uncle Tom. So Blake has to be an atheist because Uncle Tom was a Christian. Um, Blake was militant because Uncle Tom seemed to be acquiescent, and Blake was international going to Cuba, uh, where uh, Uncle Tom seemed to be a typical Negro in dealing with Negro conditions and Negro circumstances on a Negro on a plantation as a Negro slave, right? So, so, so you know, 
Uh, David Walker's appeal, I think, is an important first text for a lot of people to read. I'm not saying it should be the first book you ever read. I'm just saying it's a, a good book to read. It's quick. It's short. It's written in the, sense, the language of the time, so there's a lot of excessive language that, you know, a lot of adjectives and wordy sentences that he could probably edit, and it would make it even shorter. Um, but it gets straight to the point in four sections. It breaks down why black people's predicament is as it is. He says it's the white church. It's the, it's the preachers of Jesus Christ. The white, it's the white, he says it's because of Thomas Jefferson's and the colonization plan of sending blacks back to Africa. That's a wretched thing. He says our wretchedness on, on the part of the colonizationist plan, our wretchedness on, on the part of the, the ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our wretchedness. And he breaks it down into four or five sections, David Walker does, and each chapter is, opens with our wretchedness. And this is the word that Franz Fanon uses much later in the wretched, the wretched of the earth, right, where in the 60s and 70s a lot of conscious people came into contact with Fanon's notion that black people are the wretched of the earth. And David Walker was saying it 100 years earlier, 140 years earlier, in David Walker's appeal. David Walker's appeal was written in Boston. He was from Wilmington, North Carolina, born to a free mother but slave dad, so he was, and he inherited his mother's freedom. David Walker was never a slave. He was born free. He moves up to Massachusetts, starts a, 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 a dry cleaner type tailor type place, a tailor, a clothing tailor. And what he would do is make copies of the appeal, and he would sew them into the jackets of white sailors. So listen carefully. White sailors were the main carriers of David Walker's appeal down to the south to the black church where it would be read by the preachers to the slaves as they gathered. White sailors. One white sailor got arrested and prosecuted and sent to prison because he got caught helping David Walker in Boston uh, commute, uh, you know, get the appeal out. The appeal, and I say this in my book on black nationalism. I write a lot about Walker in that book. If you want to know what I think about Walker, that book really is, is really a valorization of David Walker as a kind of Malcolm X before Malcolm X was Malcolm X. Because David Walker calls for everything Malcolm X calls for. He says to the slaves, rise up and kill them if you must. We, this is our land. David Walker says, our ancestors died here. We don't need to go back to Africa, he says. Our ancestors' blood gives us some uh, a stake in this land. He says, here in America, Blacks are just as American as white people are because neither one of them are from here. And this is what we have to dislodge over the next 50 to 75 years in terms of black thinking. We have to tell white people, y'all ain't from here. Stop acting like you're from here. Stop acting like you own this land. Humble yourselves in the sight of God for damn sake. After 500 years of your wickedness and you see your, your country has come to hell, humble yourself. And maybe try the Native American way of being in America now, again. Maybe their way is better than the white way. Maybe we all should stop thinking about capitalism and white uh, measures of success and get back to the spirit of the great sky and the Native American peoples, those who were spiritual, because all of them wasn't spiritual. The Comanches were worse than the white people. The Comanches were evil. They were evil like the whites. But I'm talking about the ones that related to us, like the Cherokee, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, 
the Seminole. The Seminole were nothing but black runaway Indians. You got the chip, you got the chop, you got the the wild Chapatulas in Louisiana. Whenever they have Mardi Gras, the first people to kick off Mardi Gras is the black Indians of Louisiana. The five civilized tribes of, of the northeast of, of the northeast of Florida. How do you think um, uh, Jackson, uh, Florida, uh, has a county called Osceola? Osceola was the name of a uh, of a Seminole Creek Indian. Uh, Creek Indian. The word Creek, C R E E K. That was the Indian's ethnic background and tribal group. But they were called Seminoles, like the Florida State football team, because the Creek Osceola. Again, there's an Osceola County, uh, Florida. Osceola married a black woman who a white soldier captain arrested in Florida and put her in jail, and she was a slave. And Osceola said, I'm going to kill you for that. And when Osceola was thrown in jail, Osceola got out of jail. When he got out of jail, he killed that captain. There was a 40-year war between the United States and the Cherokee um, and, the, and the Seminole Creek Indians, the Indian Wars. And um, the Seminole word that Florida State uses as a uh, motto, uh, uh, a mascot, the word literally means runaway. Seminole means runaway. The, the, the Seminoles were the Creeks who ran away, right? And, and so this is powerful because I think it's important to understand that when David Walker is writing, when, De- when Booker Washington is writing, they understand as black men and women that the white man has come here and erased the original group away. So what would he do with the African? If he killed off the originals, that tells black people all they need to know. And that's what you need to understand in, 21, in, 20, in the 21st century. You think we've moved beyond that point, and yet you just saw 25,000 white people with two or three Negroes in the crowd and one or two Mexicans or, or the Proud Boy idiot that was ahead of them. Um, assemble on this country, attempt to throw it over to prevent the black vote from about five different states and about ten different black cities in America. The Capitol was all about reacting to black voting power. And when you have people clowning black people about not being smart in their voting and being dependent on the Democrats and being dependent on one party and all of this nonsense, the truth is you don't see black Americans trying to tear America down, do you? Who's tearing America down? White people. Who's trying to build America up? Everybody else. Who's trying to save America? Young white people out there standing side by side with black folk with the the George Floyd protest. I really encourage you. I did this in my class yesterday. I I showed my class a split screen of the, 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 the Trump MAGA reaction of all this white angst and racism. And then the massive reaction of whites, where there was about five to seven hundred white people only in a in a all black li- in a Black Lives Matter march, where the whole Black Lives Matter march was all white and white people carrying pro-black signs in ways the Black Panther Party and nobody before them could ever get white people to do. Black Lives Matter statistically has been proven to have been more effective than the civil rights movement in in, in mobilizing white people in the streets. King never got white people in the streets. He got a few white leaders in the streets, but he did not get white people in the streets. Black Lives Matter got white people in the streets who are not famous, who are not, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, Jane Fonda or Marlon Brando. That's who they got. 
you know, the Panthers and King. They got famous people like Burt Lancaster, celebrities. But, the, you know, and a, and a white preacher here or there who we can name that might have gotten shot or, or victimized, yes. But in terms of the massive reaction that we saw in, the, in March, April, May, June, July, um, that, was a, that was as powerful a thing that any of us had ever seen. And, and, and I think that's why David Walker must be uh, consulted first. Because he's helping us see that even as we strive for our black liberation, there are some white people who are right there willing to de- go to prison for us and willing to fight for us as vigorously as we are. And, 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 I, and, I'm not, and this is hard for me to say, to be honest with you, because I'm skeptical. I'm, I'm trying to be open-minded in saying these things because I really don't really um, have a lot of faith in uh, uh, people uh, in terms of their reliability. But I'm going to give credit where credit is due. And those white soldiers did carry David Walker's appeal. And so I think that's a first lesson. By just first reading that book, because it's quick, it's short, it gets to the point, it, it makes the early points, because it's one of the earliest literate expressions of, the, of, of black people um, in terms of how they felt. Phyllis Wheatley, of course, had been doing poetry earlier, but that's poetry. It's not really saying anything about the politics of black people, and her stuff was pretty much apolitical. But David Walker comes out calling for a general slave insurrection. He calls for black people to rise up and kill. He says, and, let it, and this is what he says. He says and, 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 he says, and if it's going to be done, let it all be done at once. He said, let's not play with it. If we're going to do it, let's just do it. If we're going to revolt, let's just do it. Let's not talk about it for 90 years. Not, let's not have uh, Umar Johnson yelling on his cell phone in a room by himself looking at the phone, talking about black revolution in his Garvey school. If you send him money, he going to transform black life. No. Um, David Walker is about black people's liberation by any means, by writing, by getting white allies, or by violence. But, 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 but Martin Luther King is not the only type of black Christian available for black people to look at. That would be that David Walker was a type, and King is a type. And King renounces violence on Gandhi's terms, uh, but David Walker was a Christian, and he did not reject violence. John Brown is another alternative to Martin Luther King. John Brown was a deep, God-fearing believer. John Brown rejected the idea of nonviolence in the abolitionist movement. Frederick Douglass rejected nonviolence. And Mary Ellen Pleasant, MEP, the sister who was the contemporary of Harriet Tubman, who don't nobody know, who single-handedly funded the John Brown raid and the Underground Railroad out of San Francisco. Mother, uh, 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 Mother uh, Mary Ellen Pleasant, she, um, she herself also was very powerful in, in this way and called for violence. She did not believe in nonviolence, Mary Ellen Pleasant. She just felt like racism... Uh, had to be dealt with. And this is what the Panthers and the other students of the 60s understood when they read Fanon, that Fanon was saying, if somebody victimizes you with violence, somebody assaults you, somebody rapes you, God forbid, and then they get to set the terms on your recovery, they get to tell you, clean yourself up, girl, you all right, get up, you cool, you, you, know, you ain't pregnant, it's okay, just don't tell nobody, and, and what, I just, what I just did to you, hey, ain't no big deal. Right? And, and, 
and that's you know equivalent of America sort of responding to us in in terms of you know how it's victimized African American people and sort of moved on like hey ain't nothing happened here, but David Walker is an early witness in the in his book again that explains to us the the things that have undermined Black people's development. Then I would move uh, quickly to the book uh, that I think every Black person at one point in time in America read uh, up into the 1950s. Uh, for 50 years, I think every black person in America read The Souls of Black Folk multiple times. It was what uh, Malcolm X's autobiography became in the 60s and 70s and 80s. The Souls of Black Folk, I, I think, uh, Ms. Graham, to this day, is the most important book ever written for black people about black people. I don't think anybody's ever come close. I don't think there's anything Cornel West has written that comes anywhere close. I don't think Henry Louis Gates. I know all of the sister writers, the black feminist scholars. I know Bell Hooks. I know Barbara Ransby. I know the scholarship of many of the black women who are professors in my own discipline and who are black women political scientists who I, who I, who I work with, who are my brother. Uh, Melina Abdullah, who's running uh, Black Lives Matter LA, is my sister. And, and you know, she's a black political scientist. Um, you know, uh, but, but the souls of black folk simply has never been surpassed in scholarship, even by Du Bois. And he's written some amazing works, like The Philadelphia Negro probably is the one book that could surpass it. But it was a book in urban sociology that makes Du Bois the father of sociology. The Philadelphia Negro. Um, Black Reconstruction was, was one of Du Bois's books. And Black Reconstruction is the book I talked about last time that explains black participation in the Civil War and in their own freedom. And I don't understand how every black person for the past 100 years hasn't been required to study black reconstruction because the truth of our liberation is in there. The lie is the popular one. The lie is Abraham Lincoln freed us. The truth is we freed ourselves. We took up guns on one front, 200,000 black men. You saw the movie Glory. Frederick Douglass advocated with Lincoln. Yes, Lincoln had to approve it, sure. Um, but then Lincoln did not approve 300,000 black men, women, and elders walking off the plantations and engaging in a general strike. So black people killed slavery with guns and a labor strike all together at one time. And that's why slavery ended. That's why slavery ended. And that's what Du Bois explains in the book Black Reconstruction. That's a book you have to read if you're serious about your people. Not because this history is going to be repeated, but you need the knowledge base. You need the depth of understanding what has gone on before. What does Du Bois say about Reconstruction that can tell us right now? Like I said this earlier today in a lecture to my students. I'm worried about the Republicans and Democrats already reconciling. I think Trump is their reconciliation. I think white America has reunited around Trump, in Trump. Now, this is going to sound odd. But I think Trump is where they have come together, not apart. Because they see the, the, the handwriting on the wall of the browning of America. And they can use Trump's racism and the racism of these white reactionaries and all of this vicious racism now to keep us from really getting any real reform because Biden, whatever little he does, can always say, y'all want real change? The alternative is Trump. That's the alternative. So put up with whatever I do. You know, whatever I come up with is better than what Trump was going to do. So Biden and the Democrats end up using the racism 
of the MAGA and Trump to do nothing for black people because the alternative is Trump. So in that way, Trump ends up aiding the Democrats. And I do believe that the way Du Bois's research informs us is if you look at what happened in the 1876 presidential election, I've mentioned that about four times on Ms. Graham's show, so I don't want to go into detail, but the 1876 presidential election was a one-time thing that ended up having a 90-year impact on black life in America when the white North and white South, after Reconstruction fails in 1877, reunite in the 1876 presidential contest. The white North and white South came together. And they united after killing each other, after 600,000 white people died, mostly white people died. In four years, the white South and white North reunited, and they ended Reconstruction, and they gave us Jim Crow. That's the lesson of the 1890s that you got to know about if you're calling yourself a leader in the 21st century. Because if you don't know that right there, that we've been sold out before, by the Democrats and the Republicans, and at that time our party was the Republican Party of Lincoln and Grant, and Grant sold, and Hayes, and Hayes sold us out. Rutherford B. Hayes sold us out. We were sold out for the next 90 years. That gave the South control, and they called it the era of Southern redemption. So Southern redemption is the 1870s, 80s, 90s, all the way up into 1965, 1970. So 1876 presidential election really doesn't um, wear off until 1970. And you want to understand the implications of Trump? I just gave you one presidential contest you don't even know about. It ain't even an important one in American history. You don't even know who the, who the, who the, who the two people were. Right? But that one... But that one presidential election set black people back by 90 years when the white people on both sides of the blood decided to reunite. And that is what I'm afraid of right now. I'm afraid right now that Trump is actually going to be the reconciliation of these white folk, that, that they're going to find a way to consolidate around all of this evil that we've seen because they know their numbers are in decline. The white liberals know, just like the white races do, that they're dying out. You think they're not going to form some sort of solidarity with Trump and their peoples when the history of America is that when white people are in trouble, they sell the black people who supported them out? And that's what's happened. So when you read Du Bois, The Souls of Black Folk, you got to understand that Du Bois is writing to articulate what he's learned from black people himself that he didn't even experience. The souls of black folk ain't got nothing to do with Du Bois' soul. The souls of black folk, uh, another proper title should be the souls of the black nation. The, The word Volk, Volk, Volkswagen, Volksgeist, Volk, Volk, the Germans, the German Volk is the German nation. And Du Bois studied in Berlin and got a Ph.D. In Ber- in, at the University of Berlin. Um, uh, but but the, um, the souls of black folks rep- really means the souls of the black nation, right? And, and so what Du Bois is talking about is what he saw down south once he got down there. He went down to the south to study at Fisk University because he couldn't go to any white school up north until he came back from Fisk and went to Harvard. At the end of his days, Du Bois says, uh, yes, I was the first black man to get a Ph.D. from Harvard. And he, this is what he said. This is what Du Bois said. And the pleasure was all Harvard's. He says, I'm sure the pleasure was all Harvard's. In other words, Harvard was lucky to have me. 
I wasn't lucky to be at Harvard. Harvard was lucky to have Du Bois. And that's what I think our young black children attitude should be at these white schools today. Do, do y'all know we, get, we, have, we have our own institutions. We have our own HBCUs. We don't need UCLA. We don't need USC where I went. We don't need Pepperdine where I went. We don't need the white schools, really. And about four years ago, uh, throughout the UC system, and I taught at Berkeley for six years, up until about two years ago, uh, the, um, the, uh, uh, the, the, the black young people who were accepted, this is in the news, you can Google it, articles, who were accepted to the UC system at Berkeley and UCLA. They're two flagship schools. More black kids rejected US, UCLA and UC Berkeley for HBCUs than accepted the admission to these flagship University of California institutions, top uh, public school system in America, and they rejected it and went to Howard and went to Spelman and went to, Jack, uh, went to Jackson State and went to Atlanta University um, and went to Morehouse and went to Grambling and went to Lincoln and Cheney. Um, and Southwest Christian College in Terre Haute, Indiana, where, 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 you know, where Jamie Foxx is from. They went to anywhere over being treated like less than by other people. So when Du Bois is talking about the souls of black folk, Du Bois is a, a, a black man educated in the North, and he's largely not black conscious. Du Bois, when he goes down south and sees the blacks play on the plantation and then go into the classroom, when Du Bois saw that the condition of the recently freed blacks at Fisk University in Tennessee, that's when Du Bois all of a sudden says he had a double consciousness. Do you hear me? Be, listen carefully, because nobody else, Cornell West ain't going to tell you this, and neither is Henry Louis Gates, that Du Bois only used double consciousness two times. Once in, I think, the, uh, the Conservation of Races in 1898, and, and 1903 and the Souls of Black Folk, which was basically a, 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 a development of the earlier work, a conserva conservation of races. So that, you know, Du Bois um, uh, is really concerned that, that in the book The Souls of Black Folk in 1903, he's responding to two racist books that were written by a white man named T.H. Dixon. T.H. Dixon wrote The Leopard Spots and Klansmen with a C. And these books were put together and made into a motion picture film by W.T. Griffith called Birth of a Nation. And President Woodrow Wilson organized the Supreme Court and Congress together, and they all sat down, and they watched Birth of a Nation, this redemptionist racist story of the Ku Klux Klan. Woodrow Wilson and Donald Trump are the same human soul. Donald Trump is Woodrow Wilson, the second coming of Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson was a deep, thick racist. Donald Trump is Woodrow Wilson. 1918, Woodrow Wilson got the Spanish flu, like Donald Trump got corona. Donald, Woodrow Wilson um, was a racist who celebrated the Klan, like Donald Trump. We had major race riots in 1918, 1919, 1917. 1919 was Red Summer. It was so bloody with black blood from riots. Tulsa, Oklahoma, 100 years ago this year, 1921, Woodrow Wilson. The most racist president in American history is Woodrow Wilson in terms of agitating race, not just being a white man who's a racist or ignorant white man that don't know black people. I'm talking about hostile. Woodrow Wilson was hostile to us when, uh, yeah, and, 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 and Trump is basically, the way you get Hitler is that Woodrow Wilson promotes American democracy from America, and it basically is a promotion of American racism and Jim Crow segregation around the world. So when the Nazis learned about 
the German, about the American Jim Crow situation, the Nazis simply create the Nuremberg laws that are nothing but Negro Jim Crow laws for Jews. So the experience of Jews in Hitler's Germany was based on Hitler studying America's Jim Crow laws. And you got to ask yourself, how did Jim Crow a play have anything to do with the law? How does a play, a stage play, a theater act, a theater play of minstrel called Jump Jim Crow become the system of law in America to, uh, that defines segregation mainly in the South? And that's because if you're only fighting a white man on the front of economics, you're foolish. If you're fighting him on the front of only guns, you're foolish. He's also engaged in cultural revolution. And that's why he, go, he goes after culture. That's why Trump is going after the 1619 Project, because he knows the one thing that black people got that can't nobody do nothing with and can't nobody hurt, can't nobody destroy, can't nobody execute, is black people's eternal culture. Our culture is ancient, and it's deep, and it's rich, and it's bloody. But it is ours. And it is why we still stand, and even the Native Americans do not, except on isolated reservations where they've been reduced by this demon. We have survived their rapes, their pogroms, their lynchings, their bus seats. Their feet on our neck, as Al Sharpton said. They've had their feet on our neck for 500 years, even as they've artificially elevated the white group with a false sense of superiority. And this is why Du Bois is responding when he sees all this celebrated whiteness. He knows it's fake. He knows that all white people ain't, ain't great. He knows that all white people aren't superior, even amongst themselves. He knows in Europe there weren't no white people. He, du Bois knew that there wasn't nothing white until it came to America. That white is a, a, the idea of white is an American adaptation in order to help white people who were oppressed by other white people Get along over here in America. So if you were a Jew in Europe, you were the reason racism was born 500 years ago. And then they cut the racism from the British. The British are the source of all white supremacy. The British. The British engage white supremacy, and they use it first against the Irish. So racism wasn't even practiced on black people first. Racism was practiced on white Europeans, who as soon as they got a chance to, became white. The Jews and the Irish betrayed us. And so did the Italians, the Sicilian, who's darker than you. They, they betrayed us. Go back in your history. Google some old images of blacks and Italians in, in five towns, New York, up in Queens, where I'm from. The Italians couldn't live near anybody but Negroes. No white man would let an Italian live near them. Nobody would let a so-called Guinea live near them. When I was a kid coming up in New York, that's what they called the Italians. That was their N-word. They called themselves Guineas. A, a, a gang of Italians called themselves the Golden Guineas in New York because the gang in L.A. in the 1940s and 50s that black people were being beat up by in Compton and in South Central L.A. called themselves the Golden Guineas. In L.A. in the 40s and 50s, the Italian gangs that were beating up blacks that, formed, that, that blacks responded to by creating the Crips were called the Golden Guineas. And I'm saying...
around them. The only place they could live near was us. And as soon as they got a chance to betray us, every white group that could betray us has betrayed us, and we don't even know we've been betrayed. The Irish literally stabbed us in the back. The Irish literally, we even sent our black leaders to Ireland, to Dublin, to talk to their leader, to get them on our side. And the white Irish in America destroyed their leader, Danny O'Connell, back in Ireland. Read the story of Danny O'Connell and see if white racism in America ain't the reason why he was destroyed back home in Ireland. Because the white Irish, the one million that came here in 48, they wanted to side with the racism against blacks. Danny O'Connell took a pro-black position and supported abolition of slavery, and they destroyed him for it. So when you hear them sing, oh, Danny boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling, that's who they're talking about, and they're full of it because they destroyed him. So when a cop gets shot, they have the bagpipes anywhere in Boston or New York or L.A. A cop gets shot, don't matter the race, they have the bagpipes. They have, oh, 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 Danny boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling. Well, Danny boy called into America and told his white Irish people, be Irish, don't be white. Because people, I'm passionate. But I'm very, I'm very clear on what I'm talking about. And, and the Irish were called Irish because they were not white. The Irish were, that's the N-word for the Gaelic group. The Celts, Boston Celtics, the fighting Irish of Notre Dame. Look at the image, the fighting pugnacious leprechaun of Notre Dame. Fighting. What are they doing? Fighting. Why are they fighting? Because the British been messing with them all the time. Why is Notre Dame the fighting Irish? Who are they fighting? They're fighting the British people. That's who they fight. And, and that's who they fought for 500 years. And as soon as they got here and were asked by blacks, blacks said to the Irish, be on our side. Don't be white. Be Irish. Because Irish meant you're not white. Irish meant the N-word for the Gaelic Greek, uh, 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 Celtic white. And instead the Irish said, no, nah, we're going to be white. And that's why Du Bois is writing the souls of black folk. Du Bois is basically saying to black people, you ain't got nobody. He don't talk about no allies, no friends, no white people, no good white people in the souls of black folk. Ain't no white messiahs, no white saviors in this book. None. The only saviors in that book are uh, Alexander Crummel. And Du Bois uses the image of Jesus a lot, even though he was an atheist or an agnostic himself, in the souls of black folk. The souls of black folk were so important politically because it was a book that black people needed to heal themselves from all of the attacks by Thomas Dixon's books, The Leopard Spot, and Klansmen. And there was another one by a black Uncle Tom Negro, or sellout Negro, I shouldn't say Uncle Tom, sellout Negro named um, George Washington, no, uh, um, what is his name, uh, William Hannibal Thomas. Look up the most disgusting black man to ever live. He belongs in the, uh, in, you know, next to Candace Owens. His name is William Hannibal Thomas. The book is called Black Judas. You want to read a book where a black man hates himself more than a white person hates black people? Read that book. There's a long tradition of black self-hatred. And, and the father of all of them is this man that wrote the, uh, this man here, um, uh, 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 William Hannibal Thomas. William Hannibal Thomas is the father of all black self-hating, all, all, all conservative black thought that is hostile to black people. Because if you're conservative, there's no reason why you've got to be racist to black people. If you're a black conservative, why are you hostile to your people? So conservatism in black consciousness, in black thinking, usually is hostile and racist against us. It's not like, oh, I'm just conservative and I'm black and I just think I'm conservative. No, it's usually Candace Owens attacking us. 
you know, uh, being a pit bull for the white, white thing. So Du Bois is responding with souls of black folk. And in each of the chapters, the most powerful thing about this book, real quickly, is if you look at the opening, if you have a copy of the book, get it right now and look at it. And in the beginning of each of the chapters of the souls of black folk, Du Bois mentions white writers, white thinkers, white poetry. And right next to it, you'll see some musical bars in every chapter except the very first one. And you'll see just musical bars, just the codes, just the bars with no words. No words, and you don't even know what song they are. But every, and if you see that, he does that in every chapter except the beginning. And the reason is, is because those are Negro spirituals. And Du Bois is saying, white man, here with your name and your words, I give you a Negro spiritual bars without the title and without the words, and it's superior to what you have produced. It's subtle. But black people needed this. They didn't know that this is what Du Bois was doing, but Du Bois was sticking the needle in their in they back even more because he was basically subtle and saying to white folk, as you're reading these chapters about the souls of black folk, guess what? Everyone that opens up has a Negro spiritual that's superior to anything a white man that it's next to has produced. So that's a cultural revolution move that Du Bois is doing by showing the black bars of the black Negro spirituals against white literature and white writing and white poetry in the souls of black folk. That's the only place white people show up is in the, in, the, um, in the forethought, in the beginning of each chapter, so that he can repudiate it with the Negro spiritual bars. And that's, that book is so powerful because black people read it like the Bible. It had a sociological impact on black people. Out of this book came Paul Robeson. Zora Neale Hurston, County Cullen, um, um, uh, Alilia Walker, the daughter of Madam C.J. Walker, the major socialite of the Harlem Renaissance, with a sister named Alilia Walker. In that picture with Madam C.J. Walker with them top hats in that car was her daughter on the right side. That's her daughter. She threw all the parties for the Harlem Renaissance, right? We're talking about Richard Wright, um, uh, uh, County Cullen, right? We're talking about black art, black writers, black sculptors. We're talking about Asa Philip Randolph. We're talking about Garveyism. We're talking about that whole time period. And I'm saying all of that came out of that book. The Souls of Black Folk is where we get the concept, the color line. The Souls of Black Folk is where we get the concept, double consciousness. The Souls of Black Folk is where we get the concept, talented tenth. And Du Bois with the Souls of Black Folk calls for a talented tenth of the black group to rise and meet and engage, and they choose Harlem. So Du Bois effectively with the souls of black folk initiates the Harlem Renaissance by calling the best of the black best into Harlem and calling the talented ten forward. So Paul Robeson is on one end in the 30s, the most prominent black man on the planet, contralto, singer, college educated, Rutgers University, football, uh, um, um, you know, b- basketball, um, track, um, uh, uh, contralto, communist, um, singer around the world, Othello. He was, he was the most talented black man of the 20th century, and he's responding to Du Bois, his, his mentor. So when Du Bois in the book Souls of Black Folk calls for the talented tenth, he basically is calling for black leadership in all of those areas of art, of culture, of politics, of religion, of sociology, of, of academia. Come forth, come forth, come forth, black world. Come forth, come forth, come forth, black world. Come forth, black talent. Come forth, black talent. Come forth, black talented tenth. That's what the Souls of Black Folk did. It said, please come, all the children, all of you who are bright, all of you who have poetry, all of you who can sing, all of you who can dance, all of you who can do sculpture. 
come to Harlem. And every major black organization in America convert, was already there in Harlem already. And so when Du Bois calls for the talent to 10, I'm saying on one end is Paul Robeson, and the, la the last of that group is Martin Luther King. You hear me? See, nobody puts this stuff in perspective for you like this. I'm putting Martin King and Robeson in relationship to Du Bois' original call for black leadership out of the talented tent. And that comes out of the souls of black folk. That's why this book is so important. It changed the black world. It changed black people's self-esteem. Black people rejected the Uncle Tom of Harriet Beecher Stowe's um, uh, uh, um, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and they pick up Du Bois' souls of black folk. And it enriches them on so many levels. There are chapters about Booker Washington, about Alexander Crummel. And, in fact, Booker Washington was being degraded in the book because Du Bois is breaking away from Du Bois, from Booker Washington in that book. There was no rivalry between Booker Washington and Du Bois. That's nonsense. Booker was God. Du Bois was a servant. Let's be clear. There was no rivalry. Booker was the man. Du Bois was not the man. Du Bois was an influence as a writer through the crisis and the NAACP, influencing the intellectual and the arts class of black people in the Harlem Renaissance, but Du Bois was not reaching the masses of black people. And that's why they followed Garvey. Garvey is who they followed. It was Booker, and then it was his two students. His two students are Du Bois and Garvey. And... Du Bois is a talented tent, Harlem Renaissance, and right next to it in Harlem is another black movement of the black masses called the New Negro Movement. These are not the same movement. I am a native New Yorker, and I'm a student of this history. Harlem Renaissance is Garvey, is, is Du Bois, um, and the New Negro is Garvey. And there's a class, any color dimension, the high yellow, light-skinned black, Garvey, uh, that's Du Bois. If you were dark-skinned, Jamaican, West Indian, um, you know, came from Panama, you, you, you are of the dark skin. So The Souls of Black Folk is a book that you have to read. Even if it's dated, it, it, it gives you your roots. Just because it's old don't mean it's of no use. It's old means it's your beginning. It's your first fruits. You, we all should be reading The Souls of Black Folk because it grinds, it, it grounds us in our culture. And it tells us that we were people who took what Africa gave us and took what we found in America, and we created our third thing, our own Negro American culture, and it now is the only culture worth saving in this country in the 21st century because the white man ain't got no culture. He's lost his culture. The only culture he's got left is his racist culture, and that's why you see the lurching forward, the way it's manifesting itself, the anxiety of the white group in general that you see as it's playing out. It's playing out in racial terms. Why? Because white people ain't got nothing else in common. The Italian and the Jew and the Irish and the Pole and the German and the French and the Welsh and the Arab, who is white, even though they didn't try to become black because of Islam, you know, they was white, and they white in our community. When they selling stuff to us, they white, the Arabs, and then they, you know, when 9-11 when happens, all of a sudden they want to identify with us and be black. So they need to figure out what they want to be. Whose side you want to be on, Muslim, immigrant? When you come to America, choose. Because so far you've been choosing the white man until they turned on y'all with 9-11, and then you became white against us too.
If we're to live up to our own time, then victory won't lie in the blade, but in all the bridges we've made. That is the promised glade, the hill we climb, if only we dare it. Because being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with more. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals. The United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. That what we see before our eyes, the sky is green and the grass is blue. But one thing you can't deny, these people are sabotaging this country. Nothing comes to a sleeper but a dream. Drilling down. Just damn. When injustice becomes law, resistance becomes duty. This is Alpha, hosting the best of Pushback Talk Radio. The Alpha Show. He's back. The Alpha Show, August 26th. How do you wake up the entire African-American community to the hidden issue of mental health? It showed up in my life through one of my best friends. And we've been friends for over 30 years. One story at a time. If we would have known earlier, you know, we would have been more, much more supportive with her. Once I reached out to my sister, it got a little better. Once I told my mother, it got a little better. The more I talked about it, I felt it coming off. The healing is in me, and the healing in the journey can also be extended to others. It's our community and our mental health. Giving voice to what you're feeling is part of the healing. If you're strong enough to just open your mouth, that's all it takes. And the most revolutionary and healing thing that black people can do right now is to love one another. It's time to share ourselves. Healing starts with us. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Ad Council, and the Stay Strong Foundation. You're listening to Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power. And ourselves, broadcasting bold, brave, black. I'm Janice Graham, 
and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for joining us in this first installment of a four-part lecture, The History of Black Political Movements in America. I'm Janice Graham, and we appreciate and are grateful for the brilliance and genius of Dr. James Taylor, who shares his knowledge, his passion, and his keen analysis and insight through years of study experience and academic leadership. Join us for the remaining three parts of this lecture series. Each Thursday, February 11th, 18th, and 25th, 8 p.m., here at Our Common Ground, where for 34 years we have been the university on the air. Join us on Saturday night coming up. February 6th on Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, we'll be talking with Dr. Shirley Whitaker about lynching as part of black history. Now, back to Dr. James Taylor. Welcome back. Uh, we're going to finish up in this next hour and cover uh, some more literature. Uh, if you haven't noticed, um, this is an annotated bibliography. And an annotated bibliography is where you list the book and then you explain it in a paragraph or two. Of course, I'm going more than a paragraph, but I think an annotated bibliography is simply where you make notes to it. You say this is the book and this is its content, and this is its argument, its thesis, so that people can decide whether they want to explore it further. So I'm trying to offer you an annotated, uh, you know, a ser- you know, gathering of, of, of books that you might get on the short term just to begin to educate yourself around some key concepts um, so if I was starting out at 16 or 17, I wanted to learn about black people's history, I would get a book called There is a River by Vincent Harding. That's the book every grandparent should buy their black child and make that child read and see the depths of their culture, and they'll see how powerful our spiritual culture is. Our spiritual culture includes our religion, but it is not our religion. It's just, religion is just one piece of it. We have, you know, multiple, multiple fronts and multiple pieces of our, of our culture, the food stuff, the music, 
the survival, right? Um, the the cool pose, you know, the urbanization, the migration. A, a deep part of Black culture that nobody talks about is we keep moving. We, we're a mo- we're a migration people. We stayed south. Always we were. It, black people. Ne- a majority of Blacks in America have never lived outside the South. The South has always been where most black people in America have always lived since we came here. Even after the six million of us left the South between World War I and World War II, 20 million stayed, you know, some 20 million blacks stayed down South, way many more. And that is now having its effect. Since the year 1970, the black migration of World War I that begins in the 1870s, really, because it's really a reaction to Reconstruction disappointment and the boll weevil are devastating us. So blacks moved to Kansas following a man named Benjamin Pap Singleton. Pap Singleton uh, was a black leader who basically followed the black migration of black folk, but he's given credit as its leader, where he led black homesteaders to Oklahoma. And that's how they end up in Tulsa in the first place, to be destroyed 100 years in 1921. They get there in about 1879, and in 40 years they're destroyed. But they followed a man named Benjamin Pat Singleton. That was a black migration. Howard Cruz explains that we, we were migrating in the 1870s before the big black migration that gave us Garveyism and gave us Harlem. That was a second black migration, he argues, Cruz does. In a book called, an article called Black and White uh, Lessons for the Next Stage, Cruz argues, Howard Cruz, I say, I keep saying Cruz, but it's Cruz. Howard Cruz um, argues that, um, that, you know, that, that we have this whole dynamic in, in, in terms of, um, you know, these, 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 these roles and these leaders. So I think it's important to recognize um, that, uh, you know, when you, when you think about African American uh, culture and, 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 you know, being sort of deep. Um, when I was in high school, a woman gave me a, a woman gave me as a high school gift, graduation gift, a book called There Is a River, by Vincent Harding. And and that's what. And, and so, mom, if you want to know how you get your kid to think like like this, well, somebody gave me somebody gave me a Delta Sigma Theta gave me the book There Is a River, and it changed my life because it showed how powerful black people's determination to survive against White violence. White violence has been the main thing. That's the main thing why we were afraid to walk down the streets at night. That's why we were scared of the Klan. It's always been white threats, white violence. White people have always been our terrorists. They've always been our terrorists. If the Muslim and the Arab is his, he's always been ours. Isn't that true? Right? So so, so I think what we're experiencing is is not unfamiliar to our culture, even if it's unfamiliar to you and to me as a generation. And I think we have to understand that people like, um, you know, Vincent Harding were trying to give us, the reason Du Bois writes Souls of Black Folk, they're trying to give us words to live by, because words matter. And at that time, written words were even more important in terms of, you know, the, the technology of print, the printing press, and early technology, so we're not internet. This ain't the internet. You got to get the internet out your mind. Get your brain out your back into the 19th century, into early 20th century. And then imagine that Du Bois is is writing Souls of Black Folk. He's doing it for psychological reasons too, to uplift black self-esteem. And listen to the beauty of that book. After the other book says the leopard spots, meaning the black things on it are the ugly things. We the spots. And then the Klansman with a small C that becomes the, the, the birth of a nation. 
and and black people have been humiliated. Booker Washington's given his famous speech saying we should be separate as the five fingers uh, in terms of, uh, you know, anything personal or, you know, social, but we should be as united as the fist when it comes to economic development. Um, at the turn of the 20th century, black people are moving, and, and when they go to the second migration in, in, in the World War II period, that's a whole other movement. So migrations are way more a part of our culture than we even acknowledge as part of our culture. How, why am I in California? Black people came to Oakland. How did black people get to Oakland? How did black, black people only been in Oakland since 1941? Really? I mean, in terms of large groups, individuals, yeah. You can find individual blacks going back to the early 19th century. You can find 400 blacks in San Francisco in 1848, 1852. Sure. Um, but the real group of black people don't come to San Francisco and Oakland and Richmond until 1943. That year, about 35,000 blacks show up. The next year, 35,000 more show up. Next thing you know, 70,000 show up. L.A. got 100,000 showing up down in L.A. all at once around World War II. Grumman, um, Lockheed Martin, um, Kaiser uh, shipyards up here in the Bay Area where the black Rosie the Riveter worker is from, black women. The image of Rosie the Riveter that has been given to you of the white woman smiling with the bright red rag on her head with the blue shirt making muscles and pointing and saying, we can do it. Be, be, be clear, that, that, that's, a, that's a woman in white face. That's, that's a white face. That's a white face rendition. The real Rosie the Riveter is a black woman in Richmond, California, with a hard hat on who was a welder. I got two pictures of her on my refrigerator. But right now, the, the Rosie the Riveter Museum, to celebrate women as workers and laborers in the World War II industry, guess where it is? Richmond, California, out here in Oakland, out, out here in the Bay Area, Richmond, where the shipyards were, where black people moved. So you had probably 200,000 black people came to the West Coast in 1943 and the years after. And, um, and so uh, that's another movement. And then there was a the World War II movement where blacks move west and north to the cities. So throughout the 20th century, 1870s and 1970s, black folk are doing a lot of moving, and then in the, 19, in the year 1970, it stops for some reason. It's almost like God said to all black people, okay, stop leaving, go back. And that's what's happening now. And most people don't know it. All of our leaders are ignoring it. All of our organizations are ignoring it. I just heard Charles Blow, the New York Times writer, finally uh, he said something two days ago where he's written a new book. His new book is about the black South and how we're all moving back there. And he, and somebody called me and said, James, did Charles Blow hear your conversations and finally write a book? I said, I don't know. I'm glad he did because some big black needs to get this out there. Some big black needs to tell us the reason Georgia turned blue is because there are 200,000 more blacks in Georgia in 2020 than were there in 2016. That's what confused Trump. Trump trying to figure out what happened to me. What happened to me? Well, Trump ain't looked at the census, but I have. The census shows that two a plus 200,000 people, most of them black, are in Georgia compared to when Trump first won, and they got him. So, so I think we, 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 we need to be able to recognize that black people's population boom is happening right now. Anybody telling you black people being wiped out, there's a genocide, it's just a paranoid, ignorant person who needs to sit around with, you know, InfoWars and listen to Alex Jones, because that's what they're looking for. They're not looking for no truth. They're looking for foolishness. If anybody you know talking about black people being wiped out when white people are dying faster than they're being born in 33 out of 50 states in America, please tell that person, call James Taylor and tell him that. Tell James Taylor black people being, there's a genocide. And James Taylor will tell you. 
White people are dying in 33 out of 50 states in America, and that's not including the 130 that are dying every day because of opioids. That's another 45,000. Right? So, so you, and, then, and then I'll tell you that every other group other than the white group in America is exploding. The Asian population is doubling. The Latino population is exploding in every county in America. And the black population is going from 45 million right now to 75 million by 2065, 40 years from now. So we're going through a black baby boom. Uh, an explosion. Now we got to get our situation right. Get our, you know, and that means that class, a region, all of those differences amongst us are going to be real. So I don't want to downplay them, but I do think we need at least a preparation of consciousness that our people, who are a movement people, are once again involved in the migration, and a lot of us don't realize it. But the baby boomers, the Generation Xs, and millennials. And there's ample newspaper articles or online articles that you can read that talk about the black out-migration throughout America. Chicago, L.A., San Francisco, Detroit, Cleveland, every black city that was black in 45 through, say, 670, let's say, let's say 80, 80, through about, through about the, uh, 80, late 80s, early 90s, lost their people. San Francisco lost its people. I was here in Oakland, 20,000 blacks left Oakland in 2000. When I first came here in 98, 99, black Oakland was still here, thriving, partying. Everybody was having a good time. It was still beautiful. The dot-com thing had happened up here. And within two to three years, all of a sudden, all the black bars and businesses around the lake in Oakland <laughs> shut down, and everything that opened up was white. And it said, one, one place put white women up in the bathroom to let Negroes know, you are not welcome here. That happened in Oakland. Um, so, so when you um, think about, you know, um, uh, these realities, when I, when I talk about a book like Vincent Harding's There is a River, black people don't need just, we don't just need knowledge. We need self-esteem, too. Don't you agree? So we, we don't need just good knowledge and data, facts. We need facts. That's why we're doing Black History Month. But we also need to lift ourselves up spiritually. That's why Du Bois wrote a beautiful book about us, because everybody else had written ugly books about us. The Klansmen. The leopard spot. And then listen to this. The souls of black folk. Listen to the beauty of that. The souls of black folk. They have, not only does it answer a Christian, it answers a question that the white Christians have been asking themselves evilly for decades. Do black people have souls? Does baptism free them? Does baptism make them my brother? Du Bois says, to hell with your Christianity. The souls of black folk is greater than. In fact, the souls of black folk is the only reason why Christianity has any adherence left in America outside of the Latino population. In other words, white Christianity, to me, James Taylor, it died somewhere between Reagan and, and, uh, and, 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 and Donald Trump MAGA. White Christianity has lost its witness. The evangelicals can preach Jesus to no one now. Black people still can. Black people, Latinos still can, because they have not been massive hypocrites. They, they, they have not contradicted the cross, but white Christianity in America, and I'm sorry if you think this is too one-size-fits-all, so, I don't have time to sit here and try to figure out who, who is and who ain't. All I know is, like James, Bond, like James Baldwin said, that, that white Christianity at 11 o'clock uh, on Sunday morning don't want my black behind in their churches. And those that do really don't want me there. They're just saying it because Jesus makes them accept me. But don't none of them accept me because I am me. Or you are you. 
So white Christians can't preach to anybody anymore. But Du Bois, and Du Bois knew that in slavery. Du Bois knew that after slavery. Du Bois said the most superior souls on the land are the souls of black folk. And then he explains it. So the souls of black folk was the elevation of us. And then, and then, then Vincent Harding comes along and writes, there is a river. And when he's, the river is us. The river is our ancient culture. The river is our ancestors. The river is the middle passage. The, the river is the ring shout. The river is black people's taking chitlins when they gave us nothing but pig stomachs and they gave us nothing but pig tails. And we took the pig tails and we, picked the, we took the pig stomach. Many of them Muslims that didn't want to eat the pork and they had to eat the pork anyway and they made chitlins out of it. They made hog marks. They made uh, tripe. They made uh, oxtail. All of this disgusting stuff that they gave us. We took it and made it part of our southern diet. Thank God we're, you know, evolving away from it finally because this slave food is why we have high blood and all this other stuff with our health, and I'm glad a lot of us are, you know, eating better. But my point to you is they gave us nothing. They even gave us a white Jesus of no value to us, a white Jesus that saved them only. And we took that white Jesus off the cross. We dirtied him up with our experience and our suffering. And then we invited Jesus to suffer with us. And then Jesus becomes black with us. And then Jesus, in Du Bois' book, The Souls of Black Folk, uh, shows up again and again in dark water. In all of Du Bois' books, Jesus is in all of Du Bois' major works. And he's always a black man being lynched throughout the body of Du Bois' scholarship. If it wasn't for black people in America, who would be singing Jesus' name the way we do? Who does? And anybody that does is doing it in light of the fact that we do. Who has taught America forgiveness? Where is the white man's forgiveness toward the black man? Anywhere in America. And I'll show you 10 popular episodes of black forgiveness from Charlottesville to Botham John, even though half of us think it's awful. It's still something that nobody else seems to be capable of demonstrating in terms of spiritual maturity. And that comes from the depth of our suffering. So Vincent Harding is trying to explain to us that our culture runs deep, Racism runs deep, but our culture runs deeper. And Vincent Harding only wrote from, um, in, the, in the book, There is a River, he covers the period from the slave um, middle passage to the Civil War, which is about 170 years, 160 years, 150 years. He covers that period. And, and, and in between that, he demonstrates to all of the black struggle, there is a river. And that river is our, our struggle. And it may be called Jim Crow, and it may be called abolition one time, it may be called black power another time, it may be called the New Negro another time, it may be called the Harlem Renaissance another time, it might be called Booker Washingtonism another time, it might be called a Black Lives Matter another time, it might be called the Million Man March another time. But it's all tied to this fundamental desire of black people to be whole and full human beings. And Vincent Harding made clear to us, and Harding was a, 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 a writer, and he helped write King's um, Vietnam speech. He was a, a professor at Spelman for many years, for about 50 years at Spelman. And he even, after he retired, went back to Spelman and offered classes for free to the black community if you just wanted to come and sit and study with him. 
Vincent Harding, one of those great black historians from the time of Andrew Young and Jesse Jackson and, um, you know, their generation um, who passed a few years ago, but who was an outstanding historian and disciple of King who documented. He was a Mennonite, so he wasn't even from a traditional black religion, but his book is about the depths of African-American spiritual culture and how it has endured. And, Ms. Graham, the more I've been talking about this of late, the more I've been saying to myself and out loud to anybody that will listen to me that I believe, Ms. Graham, I believe in why I'm, the reason why I'm emotional about it is because I feel it and I know it. I know it's true. I know that our culture is so powerful that it will sustain us for another 500 years going forward. Our culture is what has kept us for 500 years. We just celebrated, we just observed, not celebrated, we just observed in 2019 the 400 years of black presence under the slavery conditions of 1619 to 2019. How the hell do you think we're still standing? How do you get a black president? How do you get the black president's vice president to become president and make a black woman his vice president? These white people don't know what, what has hit them. That's why they're tearing down America, because they don't understand black culture is whooping their asses. Excuse my language. Black culture is whooping white people's asses, and that's what's killing them. They can't take it, because we got something they don't have that's spiritual, that no matter how many times they whip us, or lynch us, or hang us, or break us, or rape us, we still get up with our culture, and it's more powerful than their hate. It's more powerful than their racism. It's more powerful than their white supremacy. That's why we're still standing. That's why we're still here. And they're the ones dying now. Like the Bible says in the book of Genesis, when they sold Joseph into slavery, Joseph said, you all to his brothers meant it for my bad, but God meant it for my good. Now look who's dying in America. For every cop they shoot, for every cop that shoot a black boy or girl today, about 175 white people are dying every day. So if they shoot George Floyd, 175 of them that you don't even know about died the same day. And they know they're dying faster than they can kill us out. And that's why they're holding on to Trump. And, and this is true demographically. Even when you compare the white American to white people around the world, the white man is dying compared to every other white group in the world. So he died about seven years ago. Data came out that said that the life expectancy, look for it online, between black America and white America has at an all-time low. And it wasn't so much because our health conditions had improved so much. I mean, look what COVID is doing to us. But it's because their conditions worsened. Between 1945 and 1964, 95 million Americans were born. When those men came home from World War II, they wanted to make babies, and they called it the baby boom. There are officially 310 million Americans in the country right now, maybe 320 after the 2020 census, maybe 340. 340. So that means the baby boom is about a little less now than a third, but it used to be a solid third of the whole population when it was about 300,000 people. 100,000 of them were born between 45 and 64. Right? So, so, and a large segment of that was the white population. And as that uh, generation um, ages out, um, that's what you see happening. That, that's, the, that's the MAGA reaction. MAGA is, the ba- MAGA is white baby boomers who, who, who capitalism didn't do anything for. And because capitalism died in the 70s, and they were old enough to remember the 70s when they were 
with children when their fathers and had a single job and could keep them in the suburbs in Levittown, Long Island, or Levittown, Pennsylvania, um, with his one job, where father knows best, Ozzy and Harriet, Warden uh, uh, B, uh, June Cleaver, um, Happy Days with Fonzie, you know, uh, Happy Days with, with the Cunninghams. All of that time period is, is what we're talking about. And, and, and so um, I think it's important to recognize that, 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 that black people's culture is a thing that has been, and when I say culture, I mean our way of life. That, that's, the, that's the short definition of culture, a way of life. If you want to get sophisticated and academic, we can add a whole lot more to it. But bottom line is, it's who we are as a people. And, 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 and only those of us who experience it know it when we see it, when we experience it. We could all be from different places and be in a room and hear one word and we all click and we ain't never met and we know what the next word is. That's black culture. And I can demonstrate that a thousand times a day. We can go to any public place, say one thing to a group of black people that don't know each other and watch the connection. Immediate. I don't care if you're conservative, liberal, you know, gay or straight. So what Vincent Harding is saying to us is that we come from a river of, of people and a river of experience, a river of testing, a river of tempering, and we are the people who Howard Thurman, who was a great theologian here in San Francisco in the 40s and who was an advisor to King, and King carried his book around uh, called uh, Jesus and the Disinherited. Um, uh Howard Thurman said that God is on the side of those who have their backs against the wall. And that's us. We are, a, a, we are a, for the most part, and a back-against-the-wall people. And even if you want to re- bring out some black bourgeoisie, well-to-do Negroes, with the exception of those who kind of inherited some of that from the early 20th century, you know, most of us, if you're doing well, you just recently started because of some breakthrough opportunity you got in the last 20 to 25 years. Noam Chomsky said black people really only got free in the 70s. That's what Noam Chomsky said out of MIT, the great um, intellectual and scholar. Noam Chomsky said if you really do the math of the black experience in America, black people basically have gotten free in about 1967, 1969, somewhere around there, he says. So we're not even a full generation into our real full freedom away from the, you know, the full gaze of whiteness and look at the reaction we're living in. So when you are facing America's racism, you need that culture. And that's why Georgia turned blue, people. That's why Versus, the, 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 the Versus had Patti LaBelle and um, Gladys Knight, and they calling themselves aunties, and all black America knew what they meant. And they sat there and they sang them songs we've been listening to for the last 50 years as children. Midnight Train to Georgia. Um, you know, I can't even get, I won't even start trying to quote uh, Patti's songs. It's just too much. But Patti LaBelle's music. And, and Gladys's music, all that music, you know, on the midnight train to Georgia, there's another migration. On the midnight train to Georgia, she going back. He said he's leaving, going back to find, you know, because he had done a migration like the rest, and he, and he didn't find what he wanted, so he was going back. But we watched verses, and all of black America, black, these black rappers, I think it's, I, I don't know who they are, I think it was Cameron, Cameron and someone else, I'm sorry, people, I, I can't remember, Timberland, I can't remember, I'm sorry, because I'm, I'm, it wasn't in my script. But these brothers put this together. And, and, and it just takes on a life of its own. So then you end up with Brandy and Monica. You end up with Too Short and E-40. And out here in the Bay Area, the Black Bay Area had a 40-year had a reunion when that music was on TV and the, the Bay Area rap was 
being shared with the world for one night with the two rappers in person social distancing. People out here in the Bay Area took to the streets, social distancing, celebrating, just saying our music is out there. They're listening to our music. East Coast is listening to our music. This was recent. This was two weeks ago. So, 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 so out here in the Bay Area, they still want the East Coast to respect their music, even though most of the artists out here are independent because they can't get the East Coast connections. They, there's a whole different mentality out here. But the point is that we're celebrating the culture. And I want to say this before I move on to the next book, and that is that when Harding wrote the book There is a River, I began to understand for me, Ms. Graham, that nobody is more important than the river. And this is why I talk about Martin Luther King the way I do. Martin Luther King is not the most important black man in American history. He might be one of the top five, but he's not the most important black person in American history. He's definitely one of them, but he's not the. They have made him the most important black man in American history for us, and, it, and largely because he was killed. He, was, he and Malcolm become martyrs. If you grow old like Farrakhan, you grow old, and don't nobody see you in that messianic way if you retire or die instead of get shot. If you get shot in your 40s, Actually, if you get shot in your 30s like Malcolm and King did, you're going to live forever. Malcolm and King were killed at 39 apiece. They will live forever because they were still in the prime of their, young, of their lives. Neither Malcolm nor King had a gray hair on their head. They were still young men. And so um, there is a river helps me understand that Malcolm X is not more important than the river. King is not more important than the river. Obama is not more important than the river. Kamala is not more important than the river. The river is more important. The river is us. The river is our movement forward, our movement forward away from their oppressions. Every generation, how every contemporary generation defines their progress. So it was black power, it was the Million Man March, it was hip-hop, it's, it's Black Lives Matter, it was, you know, the black arts movement, it was, it was the civil rights movement, it was the Garvey movement, it was the Harlem Renaissance movement, it was the Booker movement, it was the, uh, the, 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 uh, the Reconstruction period before that. We've had more movements than any group in America that we can tap into and consult and get the data of it and bring it forward like I'm trying to do in this, in this presentation to help you appreciate that you belong to something so powerful and so old and ancient and, and strong that they've tried everything. They've hung you from trees. They've cut your body open. Look up the story of a black woman in Marietta, in Valdosta, Georgia. Um, her name, I should, her name will lose my mind right now. Um, she was lynched because her husband had been lynched, and they brought her to her husband. They brought her husband to her, and like my great grandmother Phyllis Wheatley, who, I mean my great grandmother named Phyllis, whose um, brother was lynched. This this black woman told the lynchers in Georgia, "Y'all lynched him, y'all bury him." And they got mad at her and lynched her. They cut her baby out of her stomach. She was nine months. These white women and white men cut the black woman's baby out, crushed the baby's head. Um, I don't know, Ms. Graham, if you can find that, uh, the, that sister's uh, name. I, it's, it's just skipping me right now. But it's the Valdosta. She's, you, you can see the images of her. You can see the pictures of her. If you look at the lynchings, there's one lynching of a black woman in a flowered dress with long sleeves. Look at her stomach. Her baby has been taken out of her stomach by these dogs, these animals in Georgia. And this is, I think, in the, you know, this is in, and in fact, another case happened where they cut the hands of a man named Sam Hose, H-O-S-E. They cut his hands off. 
He was the best friend of Ida B. Wells and a good friend of Du Bois. And when Du Bois was uh, protesting the race riots that were going on, he was walking down the street. Look this up. Du Bois was walking down the street on Peachtree Street in Georgia, and as he looks at the butcher stop in the butcher store, Du Bois sees his best friend's hands on display at the butcher shop in downtown Atlanta, Georgia, the hands of Sam Hose. Look up the lynching of Sam Hose, H-O-S-E. Sam Hose's lynching was like Oscar Grant uh, uh, or like Trayvon Martin or like, say, uh, 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 Emmett Till. Um, um, the, the, the Sam Hose lynching, say that again? May 19th, May 19th 1918, Mary Turner, yeah, thank South you so much. Georgia. Yes, Mary Turner. Look up the lynching of Mary Turner. So that's, that's who we are as a people. We come from this. Our people have, they, they've cut our babies out of our stomachs. Uh, there's a book called At the Dark End of the Street uh, by a white woman historian that does a brilliant job uh, explaining the issue of rape as the real civil rights movement for women. For black women in Rosa Parks, it wasn't about the bus. It was about rape. And Rosa was doing investigations of rape for 11 years and had been kicked off the bus by that white man a bunch of times. And in 1955, he did it in December when Emmett Till had just been lynched in late August, August 28th. So all of black America was fuming. And this time, Rosa said, hell no, I ain't getting off the bus. He kicked off the bus a bunch of times. The book At the Dark End of the Street explains what I'm telling you. At the Dark End of the Street explains how Reese Taylor was walking from church with her husband and a group of white boys take her from her husband and sons and rape her. And she takes it to trial. And and. And her main spy investigator for the NACP in Abbeville, Georgia, was none other than a woman named Rosa Parks. So when Rosa Parks is in 1955, she had already been kicked off the bus in 1944 by the same man. No big deal. Why is it 55 important and 44 ain't? Because 55, Emmett is dead now. Emmett has been lynched. Emmett Till is, has been lynched. And a lot of these new Negro black educators today, a lot of these black feminist thinkers, a lot of the black folk that like to try to trouble race and say, oh, well, you know, there's a lot of this going on in the academy, Ms. Graham, where you have all these people who are confused in their own identity trying to confuse black people about theirs, black people like me who are certain. They want, you to, they want to trouble blackness and trouble the category to add confusion to your life because they're all confused. Right. Um, but when you uh, understand the depths of, you know, the culture, you understand that no one person in the black history, no, none of us. I, I love Ella Baker, but Ella Baker is not more important than the river. I, I, I nearly worship uh, uh, Harriet Tubman, but Harriet Tubman is not more important than the river. And neither is um, Fannie Lou Hamer, who I love. They are they are a part of it, and they are a great cloud of witnesses, as the Bible says. They are our great cloud of ancestor witnesses. And that's why you know we still got some African in us, because we are still acknowledged, um, aware, and we as a people generally still try to recognize our ancestors. We still have some attachment to the knowledge or the need for knowledge of, because we know that there's a lot of kernels of gold waiting for us in that discovery if we would just... Dig up David Walker. Dig up um, uh, 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 the souls of black folk, of Du Bois. Dig up uh, There is a River, right? Um, Phyllis Wheatley. Um, I keep saying Phyllis Wheatley. I don't know why I got Phyllis Wheatley on my mind. For some reason, she's on my mind today. Um, uh, um, Anna Julia Cooper, I want to give her recognition because I'm talking about these men, and I do want to recognize that Du Bois' contemporary, who actually outlived him for 10 years, Du Bois died on the day that King gave I Have a Dream. In case you don't know, 
W.E.B. Du Bois died on August 28th in Ghana, the day they gave I have a, I have a Dream, when King stood up, you know, to speak later that day, earlier that morning, they had announced that W.E.B. Du Bois had died. So it was very spiritual. That, this is what I mean by our spiritual culture, Ms. Graham. And I also mean it by the fact that Warnock came from King's pulpit. If that's not spiritual, I don't know what is. The fact that W.E.B. Du Bois died on the day that 200,000 black people came together in Washington, D.C., August 28, 1963. By the way, the man who preached the, um, uh, uh, the sermon for Emmett Till on August of 1955 was none other than Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King preached Emmett Till's funeral, August 28, 1955. I Have a Dream is August 28, 1963. August 28, Emmett Till, 55. August 28, 1963, I Have a Dream. You're going to tell me that's not spiritual? And then you're going to tell me that uh, Raphael Warnock got rid of this racist woman, got rid of this racist man, these insider traders, these white senators, took Mitch McConnell out, took Kentucky out, gave uh, black people uh, uh, like Maxine Waters oversight over key committees, Bernie key committees. Black folk did that in one fell swoop because they knew who they were. They knew who they were. The more white uh, uh, Republicans try to use obstacles through voting, to frustrate black people, the more we outperform. And they don't understand that we, we saw the movie um, uh, Selma, for example, where Oprah's character has to, I think it's Oprah's character, has to go up there and guess the, the jelly, how many jelly beans are in the jelly bean jar to vote. Well, Negroes again got smart. They, they said, well, these rednecks ain't doing, they ain't going far to get the jars. They're getting them from the local hardware store. Go get the, go get the jars. Go buy the marbles. Go fill them up with the marbles. Count. So when the black folk would go up to the pole and they say how many marbles are in that, black people knew the number. That's deep black culture. So that when Stacey Abrams emerges, she's really the second coming of Fannie Lou Hamer. That's all, that's all you're seeing. All you're seeing is, is, is Fannie Lou Hamer's ghost. Fannie Lou Hamer is now in Stacey Abrams. And everybody's celebrating Stacey Abrams, but you're really celebrating that spirit of black woman who's determined to see her people free. They just happen to both be big, strong sisters from the South who don't nobody want to mess with. But, but you've got to see the spiritual connection between Fannie Lou Hamer and, and Stacey Abrams. You can't see them as rivals. You have to see Stacey as a fulfillment of Fannie Lou. And you have to understand that her actions and Tasha Brown and the black bus drivers of the black bus, the black voters movement down there all together mobilized and had the effect of the out electoral outcome that we had. Now, you've got to keep in mind, I'm a political scientist. So my, my thing is politics. If you, if you don't like the idea of me talking about parties, because I know a lot of black folk are quick to say, well, the Democrats are awful. The Democrats ain't no better. What about those Democrats, especially black men? I, I, I get you, brother. I'm with you. I'm already there. But, but we're talking about politics. Now, the subject is something different, like we shouldn't be a part of the Democratic Party, then I'll talk about that. But what I'm talking about in the meantime is that black people have made political choices in their wisdom, and I think it's a deep wisdom. Um, again, there's not another group that even comes close to black people's intelligence when it comes to voting in, in and out of parties. Black people belong to one party in America for 100 years when it became too racist and FDR made some gestures with the New Deal. They, they took them another 30 years, and by 1964, they had completely broken from their party after 100 years of, of belonging to the party of Lincoln. And then they chased the racists out. They, the, the, the image of the Democratic Party uh, before the 60s was the, the noose, and now the image of the Democratic Party in 2020 is a black woman. 
it used to be a noose and Andrew Jackson. Now it's a black woman. Now, if you don't think that's progress, brother, I don't know what you want. We don't have five parties. You can't talk about black people being in the Democratic Party. You're showing your ignorance unless you got a party that you can offer up as an alternative. If you don't have a third or fourth party, shut up about black people being Democrats. If you Candace Owens, shut the hell up about telling black people about being Democrats. Because if black people had seven parties and then chose Democrats, then you could badmouth us and say y'all are dependent on one party. But if there's two and the racists are in one and we keep jumping out, when we jumped out of that party in 64, we chased the racists out of the Democratic Party and into the Republican Party. So now the racist party in America is the party of Lincoln. And who did that? So black people used Lincoln, and when Lincoln was gone and the Republicans didn't do nothing for us, we stayed with them within that party as a party within the party for 100 years, and then we broke from that party between FDR and LBJ. White people don't have that kind of political ingenuity in America. No one group of whites have ever done anything as sophisticated as that. And I'm telling you that as a student of political science at a white university out here in San Francisco, California. Black people are the most sophisticated voting bloc in America. Damn it, you just saw it. Why do I got to convince you of what you're seeing? What did you see with, with James Clyburn? What did you see when nobody would support Biden at all throughout the primary? He had one base, black women and black men. Everybody, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, uh, Warren, Bernie, everybody came in first, and Biden just stayed there in fourth or fifth and sixth. Kamala cursed him out, called him a racist. We rejected Kamala. Yes, we did. We rejected Kamala. We rejected Kamala. We rejected Kamala, and we stayed with Biden. Black women did. And then all of a sudden, Clyburn gives his endorsement, and then it takes on a whole other thing. Because black people knew from their ancient wisdom of dealing with good whites and bad whites, of having to know the difference between the redneck, the peckerwood racist, and the good white down south, between Bill Clinton's grandfather, who would let you borrow something at the store, and the redneck that would shoot you walking in the store. Black people have always had to choose between the lesser racist white. That's our politics. And that's what being Democrats means. We've been forced to accept the lesser evil, unfortunately. And so my point is, as we've had to sort of deal with those circumstances, you move forward and black people have gained a third eye by it. They've gained the wisdom so that they knew that white people who voted for a racist like Donald Trump would vote for him again. And they did, didn't they? They tried to get him back in, didn't they? They tried it, didn't they? 74 million votes. They tried to give us this devil again. But black people are so much more intelligent than anybody gives them credit for. Because black people's wisdom with racism in the South taught them there's a good white and there's a, there's a racist white and there's a good white. And we need to find the good whites and avoid the racist whites. And Trump is a racist white. And Biden is, has a racist history and a racist uh, le legacy. And that's why we need him. We need to get this racist Biden, who's less racist than Trump, who is the vice president of the first black president, so he can't be all that bad, and he gets 95% of the black vote in, in Delaware, so he can't be all that bad. We need to get that white man. That, so if white people are voting for Hitler, they ain't going to vote for a woman or a gay or a, white, or a socialist. So white, black, white, black America knew that if white America voted for Trump, they wasn't going to vote for Kamala or Bernie or Elizabeth or a gay man like Buttigieg. All of them were doing this 
gesturing. Oh, I'm going to be. And black women were like, no, nah, hell no. White, white people that voted for Trump ain't voting for no Klobuchar. Oh, hell no. White people that voted for Trump ain't voting for no Buttigieg, no gay man. Oh, hell no. White people that voted for Trump ain't voting for uh, one, you know, the, one of the twin brothers from Mexico, from, from, uh, from Texas, um, the two brothers that, that are running for office. Black people knew in their wisdom that if, they, if America had voted for a racist like Donald Trump against a highly qualified woman like Hillary Clinton, that they would do it again. So black people said, we're going to recruit Biden. And instead of you seeing Biden is running stuff, political science, we have this category called elite recruitment. And blacks recruited Biden to use him against Trump because they knew America would vote for a light racist white man that restored in their minds the old white male order. And they would settle for that if it's an alternative to Trump. But if we had given him uh, Amy Klobuchar... Donald Trump would have been reelected, and that's why black people didn't get behind nobody but Biden. Black people didn't get behind five black candidates. Miss Miss Graham, please hear me. Black people did not support five black candidates in this last presidential cycle, including Cory Booker and Kamala Harris. We did not support black candidates. All this newfound love for Kamala and this new black religion amongst black women for Kamala ignores the fact that they themselves rejected her in the electoral primary process. And then Biden got smart and understood because black women were so mobilized since 2016 and black women were the key to winning in the midterm. And you got this record number of women across the Democratic column, wherever Democrats ran women, they won 99% of the contest against men, regardless of the race of the woman. If a woman ran, she beat a man amongst the Democrats. That's why the Republicans just recently have all women running, because women are the key. So Biden you, uh, 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 put uh, uh, Kamala on his ticket because he could not win without her. He needed her more than she needed him. Biden needed Kamala because black women were already mobilized, and he needed to keep them mobilized, so he offered up Kamala Harris. But the point I'm making is all this racism, the lynchings, all the violence, all the negativity we've experienced, our ancestry, our river, the river that your teenage son belongs, mama, you got to help your son understand he belongs to something deeper than himself. Your daughter needs to understand she belongs to something deep. That doesn't mean they're going to walk around on water and be perfect and all of a sudden become all conscious. But it means you put the book in their hand and you let them begin to educate themselves. Somebody, a black woman gave this book to me and look what it did. Listen to me. I was ignorant and I was headed to prison, Miss Graham, because I was deviant. I didn't grow up with a father. I had no father all my life. I've never had a father. So all my life I was headed for crime. All my life I was... Involved in crime as a young man. And then all of a sudden, somebody gave me a book called There is a River, and they created a black professor. They created me. A woman named Edith Giles, who now has um, Alzheimer's in D.C., doesn't even know I'm alive and doesn't even know she's alive anymore. This woman gave me a book when I was 17. And look at what I'm telling you now. Forty years later, I'm telling you, this book changed my whole life. And if you want, it, it, it will be a powerful resource for your family. So, I, again, I, I wish I could give you 50 books with a full bibliography. Uh, you know, if we had, like, somewhere, you know, if we had, a, a, you know, something, like, on screen I could share, that'd be fine. But, but the books I have discussed, David Walker's Appeal, The Souls of Black Folk, Vincent Harding's There is a River. Um, there's another book uh, called Cotton and Race in the Making of America by Jean Detail, D-A-T-T-E-L, that explains the idea that slavery is the father of capitalism. That book is called Cotton and Race in the Making of America. There's another book related to it called Slavery's Capitalism, 
that explains slavery is the father of capitalism. Another book I, uh, recommendation I, I have real quick. I'm just going to run them off because we got like two minutes left. Garvey and Garveyism by Amy Garvey. The Miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson. And what I want to say about that is that Negro History Week has nothing to do with the miseducation of the Negro. Negro History Week was supposed to be this, everybody. We all are studying everywhere in different places for 51 weeks. And in the 52nd week, we come together to show off like in a spelling bee contest where all of the black kids around the country stay where you are in Georgia, stay in Mississippi, stay in Alabama, stay in, stay in D.C., but in D.C., in Georgia, in Alabama, gather together locally and then have these celebrations around Negro History Week where you test the knowledge of the kids that what they've been studying for the previous 51 weeks. So if you haven't been studying, then now the 52nd week is not, you know, it's not that important. 52 weeks. Um, uh, the, uh, the, the Negro History Week was supposed to be the 52nd week of study where we celebrate 51 ye- weeks of previous study. The miseducation of the Negro is a different thing. It's not even talking about ignorance. We need education. The miseducation of the Negro is saying the black educated person is ignorant of his own people. The miseducation of the Negro should say the miseducation of the well-to-do Negro, because that's who he's talking about. He's not talking about ignorant black people who are dumb and don't have education about the facts of their history. He's talking about black people who think they're better than their own people and have gotten lost on white education and and, and are quick to quote, you know, some European and, and never you know, consider the spiritual depth of their own culture. That's what happened to Martin Luther King. King is all interested in Gandhi and not looking at the slave culture that was there for him to look at. The very slave culture that Du Bois explains in Souls of Black Folk, I mean, in, in, in uh, Black Reconstruction, that, um, that, uh, that you have the, uh, in Black Reconstruction, that black people freed themselves. So instead of looking abroad at Marx and looking for socialism in Africa and looking at these all, these exterior examples, the Black Reconstruction says the slaves freed themselves. Through revolution, the men picked up guns, the women and children walked off the plantation. That's revolution. Stop looking for communists or other kinds of world revolution and look at the Negro revolution within the Civil War. That's the, that's the argument of, the, of Booker Washington, of, of Du Bois's Black Reconstruction. That's that's it. There's another book I want to recommend on the way out the door uh, by Barbara Ransby. It's a good biography of Ella Baker called um, Ella Baker, because I love Ella Baker, but uh, me and Miss Ransby disagree on politics. Another good book a friend of mine just wrote is called The Revolution Will Not Be Theorized by Errol Henderson. He's a brother at Penn State that Penn State's abusing, an outstanding professor there, and his book is about the spiritual culture. He says our slave culture is our revolutionary culture. And that book came out in 2019. The revolution will not be theorized. He's saying everybody made a mistake looking outside of America for answers. The answers were in the slaves. That's what he says. So, Ms. Graham, I think we'll stop there. Since we have two more weeks, we can pick up and reiterate anything that I wanted to pick up that I didn't cover tonight. Thank you all. I hope you got something out of it. I know I go fast. I know I go all over the place. That's my style. That's jazz. That's blues. That's Charlie Parker. That's me. Um, and that's black. And and so I hope you can appreciate it. Um, Tupac had one rhythm. Jay-Z got another. I got one. Uh, Cornel West have, has a different one. And I hope you appreciate uh, me for who I am. My heart is sincere. My mother is my, is my, is my best and only teacher. Um, and I have so much respect for black people. I have divine respect for black women. And I don't mean it in some sort of way, oh, I just love black women because they fight, or black women because they magic. I love black women because my mother was a black woman who died three years ago in her 90s, born in the 1920s. And everything I got from her is where I get my perspective. 
So when I talk about the depths of a culture, I'm getting it from a, na- a black woman born in 1925, South Carolina. Thank you all so much for your time and your attention. Thank you for joining us in this first installment of a four-part lecture, The History of Black Political Movements in America. I'm Janice Graham, and we appreciate and are grateful for the brilliance and genius of Dr. James Taylor, who shares his knowledge, his passion, and his keen analysis and insight through years of study experience and academic leadership. Join us for the remaining three parts of this lecture series. Each Thursday, February 11th, 18th, and 25th, 8 p.m., here at Our Common Ground, where for 34 years we have been the university on the air. Join us on Saturday night. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.